from the campuses of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia, this is Religion for Life. I'm John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Religion for Life explores the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life, and sometimes we even talk about God, and God is the topic for today. My guest is Reverend Galen Gingrich. He's the senior minister of All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church, an historic congregation located in the Upper East Side of Manhattan in New York City. He writes a regular column on the search for meaning for psychology today and is the author of a new book, God Revised, How Religion must evolve in a scientific age, and that book is our topic today. Welcome, Galen, to Religion for Life. Thanks so much, John. Wonderful to be with you. We have a few things in common, including graduating from the same seminary, uh, Princeton Theological Seminary. I graduated in uh, 92, and you were a few years before me. 1985. And you grew up, um, your family of origin is Mennonite, and now you're a minister of the All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in New York City. Uh, And you write about in your book, The Journey from Mennonite to Manhattan. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? It certainly is a a journey. Um, It's a long way from Mennonite to Manhattan. I grew up in a little farming community in central Delaware, conservative Mennonite, which is sort of halfway between the Amish, the horse and buggy people, and the regular Mennonites. Um, We had electricity and cars, but it was a pretty austere lifestyle. Uh, I sometimes say that we were a couple of decades behind the times and not a century behind the times like the Amish. But it was uh, pretty cloistered. Everybody I knew was Mennonite, and I was related to most of them, or so it seemed. And uh, I went to a little Mennonite school. There were two grades uh, for each classroom. And it was, uh, all in all, a pretty cloistered life um, until we moved to South Arkansas when I was uh, about nine years old. My dad started a mission church down there. So um, that's when I kind of found out that there was actually more to the world than the Mennonites. Well, this book, God Revised, How Religion Must Evolve in a Scientific Age, is really a lesson of philosophy and history. There's there's much there. How, how did this book come to be? The book was my effort to wrestle with a journey I had taken from being part of a very traditional uh, religious community, a Christian community, that sort of uh, answered all of the usual questions in the usual Christian way. And in my mid-twenties, for various reasons that we can talk about, I decided that that really, those answers didn't work for me. And so I left. And I spent half a dozen years wandering around trying to figure out how I should align the compass of my life. And uh, eventually I came to uh, be part of the Unitarian Universalist tradition. But it's really an effort to say, for people who find some of the traditional religious answers unconvincing, but yet think there's got to be something more than just kind of wandering around doing whatever you want to do, Um, there needs to be a guidebook and a kind of way of thinking about how to explore that path. So it really came out of my own personal journey, and I think there are a lot of other people who face the same quandary. Uh, They want to be part of something, but a lot of the traditional religious answers don't work anymore. 
Well, let's uh, go ahead and talk about uh, God a little bit. The title of your book is God Revised, and you use this image. Uh, Like the Amish buggy, uh, the belief in a supernatural God is the lingering vestige of a bygone era. Uh, How is a supernatural God like an Amish buggy? Well, that's that's a very good question, John. Um, There are lots of ways in which God is is, uh, not like a buggy, but I think the you know, as I as I thought and struggled with the idea that God is all knowing and all powerful and all good, and that God's in control and everything is going to work out okay, and I looked at my life and I looked at the world and I said, some parts of that are really hard to believe, and so maybe the experience of God, like needing transportation, is something that um, actually changes over time, given what we know about ourselves and human history and the universe. And so my exploration of how we might think of differently about God in the modern world, and, and in fact how we may experience God differently, uh, needs to evolve in the same way that our uh, methods of transportation need to evolve. Someone said, and I think it was uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong, uh, or he may have been quoting someone, he said that Galileo uh, put God out of a home and Darwin put God out of a job. And, of course, he's speaking about God as a supernatural agent who created and controls things. Uh, so I guess the, the question is, for, for many people, they say, well, maybe God itself is a product of the bygone era, gone the way of, of Zeus and Marduk. Um, is, is God still a useful term? I think it is. And it's one of the reasons that I wrote the book. Um, and it's one reason for the title, um, God Revised. And I didn't start out uh, writing the book by saying, I need a way to experience God that makes sense in the modern world. I sort of started at the other end and said, okay, given what I know about myself and I know about the world, what does it mean to be a... Um, a, a person who has a fully meaningful life that takes into account everything I know and everything I experience. Do I have to believe in God? Is it optional to believe in God? A nice thing if you want to believe in God, but okay if you don't. Or is it necessary? And where I land is that if you take into account um everything we know about ourselves and our world. And you want to take seriously the task of living a meaningful life, that ultimately the experience of God has to be part of your experience. So I I land on saying that it's a necessary experience. But the experience isn't the same experience as it was in the days that people thought God was a supernatural being in the sky. So um, I want to uh, experience God in a different way uh, and think about that experience differently. But I certainly think that it is uh, a necessary part of life in the modern world. At, uh, at one point, you write about Karen Armstrong's insights in her book, A History of God, and you write, the history of God is the history of the rules human beings needed a God to play 
in order to bring coherence to human history and human life. And I thought that was really insightful. You're talking about really the function that God has for us. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Well, I was in uh, Israel a couple of years ago uh, talking with Natan Sharansky, the famous uh, chess master and human rights activist. And uh, the the uh, Soviets threw him in a Siberian prison for the better part of a decade for uh, not going along with, with their project, and he wanted to emigrate to Israel. And he said he learned the most important thing he ever learned uh, in his life in that prison, and that is that there are two human longings. One is to belong, and the other is to be free. And he said... We usually confuse those two and think that freedom means an absence of being committed, tied down, being part of something. Um, And he said that's actually precisely wrong, that only when you understand how you belong, what you're connected to, what you're dependent on, are you then free to be the kind of person you can be. And when I think about the experience of God, I think about how completely I experience belonging to everything. Um, Not just my immediate world, not just the solar system or or the universe as we know it, but to everything, Um, including all that is past and all that is possible. So my experience of God in that sense is the word I use to describe the human experience of ultimate belonging. And so, to me, that, that's a necessary part of human life, is a sense of to what we belong and how we belong. And once we kind of get that on our radar screen and can understand the impact of belonging that deeply and that completely, then we begin to understand how we are free to act as human beings um, at this moment on this day. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Galen Gingrich. He is the senior minister of All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in New York City, and he's the author of God Revised, How Religion Must Evolve in a Scientific Age. Uh, And you were just talking about God and the sense of belonging. uh, And I often get asked uh, whether or not I believe in God, and... um, And I'm not sure exactly how to answer that question, because I think what's being asked is whether or not I believe in a supernatural being who controls things to whom uh, is a person, and I I can't really go there anymore. And yet at the same time, uh, I I do have a sense of of something. Uh, How do you answer that question when someone asks you whether or not you believe in God? My answer is yes. It comes with some qualifications, of course, but uh, I think... If you understand that a fundamental part of human experience is this sense of transcendence, the sense of us being part of some magnificently wonderful drama of creation and evolution, that uh, we play maybe an infinitesimal role, but nonetheless, we're part of it, um, and that we have occasionally a sense of that, that connection of all that is past and all that is possible. And you agree that that sort of transcendent experience is a part of human life. Then you say, okay, what's the right name for that? And 
my answer is the right name for that is God. Do I mean by God what people a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago meant by God? No. Just like I don't mean by a lot of other words. I don't mean by medicine today what people a thousand years ago meant by medicine. We don't do bloodletting anymore, at least in most parts of the world. But the reason I continue to use God is that it's one of the most powerful symbols in the world. It's one of the most powerful forces for ill in the world. People use God to do all sorts of things that um, they shouldn't be doing in anybody's name, much much less in God's name. And it seems to me that, that a part of the challenge is to say that way of understanding God and that use of the experience of God to make the world a terrible place for so many people isn't right. And I think only by reclaiming the experience of God and saying, in the modern world, we have to do this differently, just like we don't do medicine the way we did a thousand years ago, we don't do faith and religion the way we did a thousand years ago. So part of the reason that I continue to use the term God is that people at least head in the right direction, you know, that greater than which nothing can be conceived, as one medieval theologian put it. Uh, so they head in the right direction, but also I think it's necessary to reclaim that symbol and that experience from those who would use it to make the world a truly brutal place, especially for women and gays and other minorities. And that sense of, um, of reclaiming that word is, is worth for you the confusion that might come um, from uh, a, a misunderstanding of God. Well, the only alternative is either to say, I don't believe in God, um, which seems to me to, to say that I'm going to kind of define myself by what I don't believe, which would be mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, going to Carnegie Hall because of what you won't hear there, uh -huh. uh, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Or you basically say that I'm going to invent a new way to describe it. And I don't or haven't yet come up with an alternative description for the experience I'm talking about when I talk about the experience of God that to me makes any sense. So um, at the moment, I think God is uh, the best way to describe that experience. You seem to resonate uh, with process philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. You write about him quite a bit in your book, God Revised, and I know this would take several books, but can you distill for us his significance for you and your understanding of God for modern people? I think Whitehead, who was, uh, he started out as a mathematician, um, wrote a very important uh, mathematical treatise uh, in the 1920s called Principium Mathematica with Bertrand Russell. And then, ironically, both of them went off into philosophy. And Whitehead's basic insight is that things are made up by what they're related to. So we're constituted not by what we are apart from the things around us, but how we're related to them. And he, he started at very small levels and talked about how, you know, a, a particular atom or molecule or body is made up by the way in which all of the constituent elements are related to each other. And he extended that to, to human beings and human society. So it's an understanding that I am 
the collection of relationships, which is to say collection of experiences that make me up. So if you want to talk about Galen Gingrich, you don't start talking about, well, he's a straight white male who weighs 193 pounds and has, you know, 12 major body systems or however many there are. You start by talking about things like, I grew up Mennonite, then I went to South Arkansas, and I left the Mennonite church and I got married and et cetera, et cetera. All of these things are made possible by the people and world around me. I can breathe because there's air. I can, you know, get in a car and drive to the store because there are rules about uh, traffic laws, et cetera. So my life is made up of the experiences that the people and world around me make possible. So that's kind of the central insight of Whitehead's way of looking at the world, that it's made up of, of experiences uh, made possible by relationships, and it's not just these individual unrelated things bouncing around in the universe. And you talk about that, that that gives us a sense as human beings of, of a hope, of a possibility uh, within every interaction, every second of our being. In a sense, that, that's related to, to faith itself. And there's a beautiful way you put this. Uh, we are the face of God in this world and God's voice and hands. And that recognition gives us uh, both a frightening responsibility and, and a boundless possibility. Well, I think that that's the point, because... If you, if you understand the world in terms of, of relationships and um, you kind of look at whatever the present moment is as the raw ingredients you have to work with, you can look at the future and say, okay, I, I have what I have and I am what I am and I am where I am. But given those constraints, and sometimes they're pretty significant constraints, but nonetheless, given them, I can put together the future however I want to. There, there's no, there's nobody uh, else who's who's uh, going to decide exactly how I'm going to react. Which is why, you know, people who are in situations of extreme poverty or even oppression, even torture, you can't you can't ultimately completely be controlled by your circumstances or other people. You always have a certain amount of, of freedom to respond to the present moment in a creative way. And I think that's the beauty of this sense that what determines how things happen isn't uh, some uh, remote deity in the sky, but it is right here, right now, me making decisions about how to get from here to a better place. And that's, that's the whole part of it that's really wonderful and creative, is that um, anything is possible within the constraints that, that the present moment sets. And so, you know, some people say that I sort of believe God is possibility, and that's not all God is, but to me, the sense of possibility that pervades each moment of each day, that I always have choices about how I respond to other people and about what I do, and that I can move from what is present to what is possible in a way that brings more truth and more harmony and more beauty into the world, that's, that's enormous power. 
And I just think it's a fabulous way to think about human life and a fabulous way to think about God. Galen Gingrich, my guest, author of God Revised, How Religion Must Evolve in a Scientific Age. And, and of course, part of that is, is the change uh, that science gives us of a whole new understanding of the universe. And, and religions seem to be, uh, in many, many respects, uh, giving us, well... 16th century medicine, as you mentioned before, in a 21st century world. And so people might respond by saying, well, I'm really not religious, uh, but I'm spiritual. And, and, and you talk about uh, the spiritual but not religious. Um, what, what do you think that means, and how do you both affirm and challenge that for people? Well, I completely understand that in a world where religion is doing so many bad things and having uh, such a bad influence in so many places, that, mm-hmm. that people wouldn't want to be associated with it. Um, Good call. I completely understand that. On the other hand, if you think about what it means to be spiritual, it means to have a sense of how you're connected to everything, how you belong to everything. And as as you become aware of how utterly dependent you are on the people and world around you, um, and that you have some responsibility in return, there comes a moment when you say, okay, my response needs to take a particular form. Um, some things are better than others, and, and I need to keep these things in mind as I live each day. And because I'm forgetful, I need to be reminded. So there's this kind of discipline of reminding ourselves what's important, what we ought to focus on, um, what we ought to do. And we realize that we need some people around us who share this, uh, the, the commitments we've made, because it, it's hard to have any impact in life if you're doing everything on your own. Um, it's hard to raise your kids. It's hard to, you know, help make your community a better place. It's hard to help make this nation a better place. So eventually you get to the point you say, I need some some symbols to remind me of the commitments I've made. I need some stories to renew my courage, and maybe a song now and then would be a good thing when I'm feeling low. And over time, if you take yourself seriously as a spiritual person, you begin to accumulate patterns of life, disciplines, symbols, other people, and what you end up with is something that looks an awful lot like a religious community, which is kind of the point. Ultimately, uh, a religious community at its best mirrors the way life works at its best. We are connected to each other. We need to be committed to each other. Uh, Our well-being depends on other people and vice versa. So I think ultimately people end up in something that looks like a religious community, even if they start out wanting to be spiritual but not religious. You use an example uh, in your book of the film Shall We Dance with Richard Gere and Susan Sarandon about what marriage is and, uh, and how that's like religious covenants in which we bear witness to each other. Can you, I thought that was really marvelous. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, it's about, it's about a covenant and uh, the movie, which uh, if you haven't seen it, it, it it's must viewing. Uh, Gear plays a middle-aged, I think he's an attorney who kind of is a little bored with life, and so he takes up ballroom dancing surreptitiously. And he gets interested in it, and it kind of livens up his life, and his wife gets suspicious, so she hires a private detective who 
trails him, finds out that he's taking ballroom dancing lessons. And um, so his wife said, okay, um, let him take ballroom dancing lessons. And the detective and, and the wife, played by Susan Sarandon, meet in a bar to, uh, so she can pay his fee and tell him he's done. And they talk about uh, why people get married. And uh, he's seen, you know, a lot of infidelity and says, well, it's just hormones and passing fancy and stuff. And she says, no, that's not the reason. The reason people get married is because they need somebody to bear witness to their lives. There's a billion and billions of people on the planet. And how, why does any one person matter unless some other person says, you know what, you matter to me. I will bear witness to everything that happens to you, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the terrible stuff, the wonderful stuff. I will, you will matter because I will be your witness. And I think that sense of commitment to each other, which, as you say, lies at the heart of how a religious community understands its covenant, is also, um, if we take it seriously, a part of our understanding of how we relate to the world around us. Um, I, I sometimes say, in fact, I quite often say that because we personally take what we need from the people and world around us, we need to take personally what the people and world around us need. And I think that fundamental knowledge and that fundamental commitment is a bearing witness to the truth about how we thrive as human beings and how we can respond in ways that uh, enable the people in the world around us to thrive. And there's a, a sense in which all of that kind of ties back for me as I'm reading your book uh, about God, about uh, the idea that nothing is lost, that it's, a, that it's an ultimate trust and faith that, that, that we matter, that our existence, our, our joys, our struggles, our, our failures, all are, are, are bound up and, and they count. And somehow trusting in that transcendent sense that we count is a part of faith as well. Well, it is, because ultimately... I mean, I, I talk in the book uh, about the past and the future and how science is actually uh, not very adept at explaining either of those two things, uh, and particularly our experiences of the past. I mean, uh, when the constituent physical elements that made an experience possible disband and go off to do other things, what happens to that experience? Does it just kind of evaporate or vanish? Does it even exist anymore? And where do possibilities come from? Um, you know, the the rest of my day could unfold in, you know, a jillion different ways. Uh, but it will unfold in only one. So what about all those other possibilities? They don't exactly exist, but they sort of come from somewhere. So I think our confidence that the past will endure in some way and that the future will appear in some way is a deep confidence in in the goodness of of nature and in the truth of our experience that everything ultimately matters it all gets held together and i think that fundamental commitment um forms for me at least a faith that even though i might be in a really tough patch or the world may in some ways be really difficult place, that something better is always possible, and I can hold out hope and work toward that end.
we could talk for uh, another hour or two about this fantastic book, God Revised, How Religion Must Evolve in a Scientific Age, but we're out of time. Uh, Galen Gingrich, Senior Minister at Unitarian Universalist Church at All Souls Unitarian Universalist Church in New York City, has been my guest. Uh, thank you for your book and uh, for being with me today on Religion for Life. I'm deeply grateful, John. Thank you so much. We are the youth of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. You have been listening to Religion for Life. Your host is John Shook. He's our minister. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. Come visit us. You can find more information about this program and links to podcasts at religionforlife.com. Follow Religion for Life on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Listen to us on iTunes. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETSFM, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHCFM, Emory, Virginia. Be well!